Yarn. Yarn number nine, the Cuban Missile Crisis. October 27, 1962, the Caribbean. On the seabed, a Soviet B-59 submarine carrying tactical nuclear weapons is surrounded by 12 American ships that drop dummy depth charges. The Americans are trying to get the Russian submarine to surface. On board the sub, three senior officers argue over what they should do. They're out of contact with their comrades and with Moscow. They don't receive communications from the American ships that tell them that the depth charges are dummy. And two of the Soviet officers want to return fire with a nuclear launch. But a third is not so sure. Because he knows that there's no going back from a nuclear launch. This is the most dangerous moment of the Cold War, a 50-year rivalry between two superpowers that dominated international affairs. This moment happens during the Cuban Missile Crisis. In the small hours of this morning, May the 7th, 1945, I saw the formal acknowledgement by Germany's present leaders of their country's complete and utter defeat by land, in the air and at sea. After the Second World War, the victorious nations found themselves divided between two camps. East was led by the Soviet Union and West led by the United States. Now, East and West had different ideas about how countries and the world should run. Now, you could have a discussion for about two weeks about the differences between East and West, but here's the simple version. In the East, the Soviets and their allies ran communist countries that aimed to end poverty and create equal societies. But they also put tight controls on how much freedom their people had. And all political parties, except of course the Communist Party, were outlawed. The US and other Western nations were more liberal. Capitalism allowed individuals to accumulate great wealth, if they were able. People would not necessarily be equal, but they would be free to oppose their governments and change them every few years. That's basically it. And there's something else we should clear up. The Soviet Union was the shortened version of the country's full name, Union of the Soviet Socialist Republics, or USSR. Sometimes we call it Russia because Russia was by far the biggest of the 15 countries in the USSR. So when you hear us saying Russians, we mean Soviets and vice versa. It's not technically correct. It's just kind of the way it is. Anyway, the rivalry between the US and the Soviet Union was known as the Cold War. Why? Well, because as it turned out, they never actually went to war with each other. There was actual fighting are hot wars in which the superpowers took part, but they never actually fought each other. (laughs) 
You see, during the Cold War, both sides developed awesome atomic and nuclear weapons, which the US had first used to defeat Japan in 1945. The Soviets developed their own atomic weapons in 1949. The power of these weapons meant that any conflict between the US and Soviet Union could potentially destroy the whole world. In 1949, the West set up NATO, an alliance of 12 Western countries that guaranteed to defend each other if attacked. The East set up their own organisation, the Warsaw Pact, in 1955. Across Europe, a heavily militarised border known as the Iron Curtain divided the continent between both sides. One of the most dangerous points of this border was the city of Berlin, which, although within East Germany, was also divided itself between East and West. In 1947, the Soviets stopped the West from delivering supplies to West Berlin through East Germany. This led to the Berlin Airlift, in which the people of West Berlin relied for over a year on supplies flown in by plane. Will you be able to continue the present air supply indefinitely? We will increase it and we can continue it indefinitely. But the first fighting of the Cold War took place in Korea, which was divided between the Soviet-supported North, a communist country, and the American-supported South. The war started in 1950 when North Korea invaded South Korea. America and other Western countries rushed to the South's defense, while the Soviets continued to supply the North and their allies, China. What the world needs in order to regain a sense of security is an end to Soviet obstruction and aggression. In 1953, the war ended on almost exactly the same line on where it started. You might say the Korean War was a draw. Cuba a large Caribbean island, just 160 kilometers south of Florida. In 1959, a revolution led by Fidel Castro overthrew the dictator Batista, who had been supported by the US. Viva Fidel Castro after his victory, Castro spoke out against America's influence all over the region. By 1961, Cuba's revolutionary government was taking over American-owned businesses. It became clear to the US that Castro and his revolution was communist. In 1961, American President John F. Kennedy and the CIA set up a small force of anti-Castro Cubans to take the country back. The operation, known as the Bay of Pigs invasion, failed terribly. It was another victory for Castro, but he knew that the Americans would try to overthrow him again. Actually, throughout his lifetime, there were around 600 assassination attempts on the Cuban leader. But the US did stop trading with Cuba, and all diplomatic ties between the countries were cut in 1962. All the while, Cuba and the Soviet Union 
started to move closer together. October 1962, an American U-2 spy plane makes a pass over Cuba. Flying on the edge of Earth's atmosphere at over 70,000 feet, the U-2 is difficult for radar to detect and even harder to shoot down. Using special cameras on its underbelly, the U-2 takes several photographs of Cuba before returning to base. On the ground, experts pour over the photographs and make a shocking discovery. Missile sites are being built on Cuba. Nuclear missile sites capable of striking multiple targets within the United States. It doesn't take a genius to work out where the missiles have come from. They're Russian and America has never been so vulnerable. President Kennedy is informed the next morning. He immediately puts together a team of security experts to help him handle the situation. It's known as XCOM. After hours of meeting and debate about what to do, XCOM comes up with six options for the president to consider. One, do nothing, because the threat of nuclear war between the United States and Soviet Union is nothing new. Two, use diplomacy. Tell the Soviets that their cover is blown and pressure them into removing those missiles. Three, talk to Castro and tell him that unless the Soviet missiles are removed, the US is going to invade Cuba. Four, invade Cuba. Use ground forces to remove Castro and capture the missiles right away. Five, airstrike. Destroy Soviet missile sites on Cuba from the air. Six, blockade. Use the US Navy to surround Cuba and prevent any more Soviet missiles from reaching the island. Now, none of these options were perfect, but it was President Kennedy's job to decide which one could help get rid of the missiles without plunging the world into nuclear war. The Soviets began their secret build-up in Cuba in the middle of 1962. Actually, the mission was so secret that missile personnel didn't even know where they were going when they left Russia. And when they did land on Cuba, they were given checkered shirts to make them look like agricultural workers. You see, the Russians and the Cubans didn't want the American spies in Cuba to suspect what was really going on. But why did the Soviet Union put missiles in Cuba? I mean, why did they want to threaten the Americans so dangerously? Well, the Cold War has often been compared to a game of chess, in which the players, in this case two nuclear-armed superpowers, look to get an advantage over the other side. So, if you take the world map as a chessboard, it's obvious that before late 1962, the US and its allies held the advantage. The Americans could almost guarantee that in the event of war, their missiles would hit the Soviet Union first. After all, they had bases in Western Europe and Turkey, which was very close to Soviet territory. So Soviet missiles on Cuba were a game changer. The Russians were now in a much stronger position, should the dreaded war start. And the Soviet leader, Nikita Khrushchev, would also be able to use these missiles as a bargaining chip if he wanted to force the US and NATO out of West Berlin, which was deep inside East Germany, remember. 
Lastly, these Cuban missiles, or these Soviet missiles in Cuba, would give some security to Castro and his communist government, which felt deeply insecure after the Bay of Pigs. So it's not that the Soviet Union actually wanted to fire the missiles, they just wanted the US and its allies, the West, to know that things were different now. October 18th, President Kennedy meets with the Soviet Foreign Minister at the White House. Kennedy plays dumb, he pretends not to know about the missiles, but he does ask the Soviet minister questions about what Soviet workers are doing in Cuba. See, Kennedy was trying to see if the minister would tell him about the missiles himself. Of course, he didn't. And the rest of the world is still in the dark. Nobody knows that the Soviets are building nuclear missile sites in Cuba, except the Soviets themselves, obviously, and also the top level of the US government, which is pretending not to know. So President Kennedy keeps up his normal schedule. There are elections coming up and he hits the campaign trail. But as the crisis deepens, he returns to the White House. And in order to explain Kennedy's sudden return, the media is told that the president has a bad cold. The story goes that he's in bed with a fever. Actually, he's in top secret meetings with XCOM. And on October 21st, Kennedy finally made his decision about what to do about Soviet missiles in Cuba. Good evening, my fellow citizens. US Navy would surround Cuba and inspect all ships headed for the island. It was a blockade, but they didn't call it that because you see, blockades can be taken as an act of war. Instead, they gave it another name. They called it a quarantine. Within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. The next day, the Americans go public and tell the world about the Soviet missiles. In a speech to the American people and to the rest of the world, Kennedy says that any missiles fired from Cuba would be regarded as an attack by the Soviet Union on the United States. This nation to regard any nuclear missile launched from Cuba against any nation in the Western Hemisphere as an attack. And around the world, people react to this. Other NATO countries support the American blockade and call on the Soviet Union to back down. In the US itself, Americans keep in close touch with the news to see what the latest was. In schools, imagine this, classes are drilled in duck and cover to try and protect children from nuclear blasts. In the East, the tightly controlled media report Kennedy's actions as a threat against Castro and Cuba. The missile sites aren't reported. Instead, Khrushchev announces that any Soviet ships that are heading for Cuba are not going to stop at any American blockade. Now the world gets nervous. What would nuclear war actually look like? Well, the only time that nuclear weapons have been used in a real conflict was in 1945, as already mentioned. If they do not now accept our term, they may expect a rain of ruin from the air, the like of which has never been seen on this earth. This is when the American bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki ended World War II. 
Around 120,000 people died in these bombings. You know, the survivors tell of waves of fire engulfing everything around them. Since the Japanese bombings, there has been a lot of research and debate over what would happen if a nuclear war between the US and Russia did break out. Of course, it's difficult to be sure, but most experts agree that after many millions of deaths caused by the explosions themselves, millions of tons of smoke would fill the Earth's atmosphere and cause catastrophic environmental damage across the whole planet. Excessive levels of radiation or fallout would make life as we know it unlivable. If you want to know what nuclear war would look like, just imagine hell on Earth. October 24th, Soviet ships bound for Cuba finally approached the US blockade line. The ones carrying missile materials do start to slow down or even stop. It looks like the Russians are blinking. But what about the missile sites that are already in Cuba? The blockade can only do so much. So the crisis continues. The US military is now at DEFCON 2, the highest state of alert it's ever been at. A huge force, ready to invade Cuba, gathers in Florida. Bombers carrying nuclear weapons are refueled in the air so they fly non-stop. And then, on October 26th, Khrushchev sends Kennedy a telegram. And the Soviet leader says he'll withdraw the missiles from Cuba if the US promises never to invade the communist country. Is this a breakthrough? But the most dangerous day of the Cuban Missile Crisis is still to come. For 12 days, American and Soviet leaders have raised the threat of global destruction to unprecedented levels. But on October 27, 1962, Black Saturday as it becomes known, the world goes closer than it's ever been before or since to nuclear war. started out well. XCOM held a morning briefing when they heard that Khrushchev was offering to withdraw the missiles. He was doing it publicly this time on Radio Moscow. But there was confusion as well because Khrushchev wasn't making the same demands that he had in the private telegram the night before. This time he was talking about Soviet missiles being removed if the Americans took their missiles out of Turkey and Italy. And now the Americans are confused because the Soviet leader is saying one thing in private but something else in public. What's going on? They start to debate about what to do. They think that there's a power struggle taking place on the Soviet side. And this makes everything more dangerous, more unpredictable. And then another private message from Khrushchev is received. And the Soviet leader is almost emotional in this one. He's pleading with Kennedy to see the situation from his point of view. How can we remove missiles threatening you in Cuba if you don't remove the ones threatening us in Turkey? Kennedy listens. 
but at around the same time, news comes through that another U-2 spy plane making a pass over Cuba has been shot down. The pilot is deceased. So the Cuban Missile Crisis has its first casualty. An American plane has been shot down over Cuba. Is this the first shot of the Third World War? In theory, Kennedy should respond. Full-scale invasion. And we now know that Fidel Castro was also pressurising Khrushchev to fire those missiles if Cuba was invaded. But that's not what happened. Instead, Kennedy stopped and thought. Khrushchev could never have ordered his forces on Cuba to fire at American planes knowing that the Americans would fire back because that would be the Third World War and the Soviets would have started it. It just didn't make sense. And he was right because we now know that Khrushchev had specifically ordered his forces not to fire until fired upon. The U-2 was actually shot down by a reckless Soviet commander acting on his own whim. Remarkably, on the same day of all days, another American spy plane strayed into Russian airspace on the other side of the world. What does this look like to the Soviets? It looks like enemy reconnaissance just before an attack. Black Saturday was just that kind of day. I remember leaving the White House at the end of that Saturday. It was a uh, beautiful fall day. And thinking... uh, That might well be the last sunset I saw. But of course, that's not all. Remember where we came in? Out at sea, near the blockade line. Those US naval ships surrounding this Russian submarine. A Russian submarine carrying nuclear-tipped torpedoes. Out of touch with their comrades, out of touch with Moscow. They know not what's going on in the outside world, only that they are being surrounded and that American ships are dropping depth charges. The Soviets don't know that these depth charges are dummies designed only to make it surface. They consider, or they at least consider the possibility that this is a genuine attack. Two of the Soviet officers on board B-59 want to return fire with tactical nuclear weapons. But the third almost miraculously disagrees. And you see, the thing about these Soviet subs, or this one at least, was that all three senior officers on board this sub had to agree to a nuclear launch for one to be carried out. Vasily Arkhipov is the name of the Soviet officer who refuses to sanction the release of nuclear weapons. He instead successfully persuades the other two to surface so that the Soviet sub can make communications with Moscow. Forty years later, an American official said that Vasily Arkhipov had saved the world. As cooler heads prevailed at the pressure points of the crisis, the two leaders started moving closer together too. 
As it happened, the deal that ends the Cuban Missile Crisis is hammered out unofficially by the president's younger brother, Robert Kennedy, and the Soviet ambassador to America in a secret meeting on Black Saturday night. The younger Kennedy plays a tough line. The US will invade Cuba in the next 36 hours if steps are not taken to remove the missiles immediately. In return, the Americans will remove their missiles from Turkey and Italy. But this has to be kept a secret. To save Soviet face, the US will promise never to invade Cuba. The ambassador notes the offer, makes a call to Moscow to tell Khrushchev what the offer is. And the Soviet leader likes what he hears. The next morning, again publicly, he announces that the missiles in Cuba will be dismantled and returned to Russia. The Cuban Missile Crisis is over. Of course, the Cold War wasn't over, and there would be many more crises in the years and decades ahead, but none were as dangerous as what happened in Cuba in October of 1962. Both sides did learn from the Cuban Missile Crisis. A telephone hotline was installed between Moscow and Washington to ensure that future leaders would not have to rely on telegrams and diplomatic back channels to discuss dangerous situations. You know, it's possible too that the relationship formed by Kennedy and Khrushchev through this crisis actually went some way to reducing tensions between their countries. Yeah, they had threatened to destroy each other and the whole world with nuclear war, but they had also found a way to put their differences aside. They had found common ground. When Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas in November of 1963, a year after the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Soviet leader was said to be devastated. Do you hear what I Khrushchev himself left office in 1964. He died in 1971. Fidel Castro was enraged that the deal to end the crisis had taken place without his involvement. But you know, that deal cut by Kennedy and Khrushchev in 1962 did more than anything else to make his leadership of Cuba last until 2006. Castro died at the age of 90 in 2016. This has been the documentary for YarnPodcast.com. Written and narrated by Dermot Tobin. Produced and recorded by Pierce O'Queeve.